Alert, 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 listen up now. We talk about this and Bitcoin, Litecoin, MyCoin, your coin, and baby Mondays at 600 hours Eastern Studio A. Understanding must arise during these times of unparalleled deceit. A view into the depths of society on pawn which this country has fallen. A storm breaks upon the horizon. It's been said that those that have the eyes to see and the ears to hear will play a paramount role in the furthering of humanity and civilized society. But can civilized society and humanity survive the coming conflicts not seen since a dawn of time in ages bypassed? But you can find true forms of information and knowledge in abundance at revolution.radio, freedomsleps.com, the number one listener-supported radio station on the globe would stand upon the right side of history. Right side of history. The opinions expressed on this radio station, its programs, and its website by the hosts, guests, and call-in listeners or chatters are solely the opinions of the original source who expressed them. They do not necessarily represent the opinions of Revolution Radio and FreedomSlips.com, its staff, or affiliates. You're listening to Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com, 100% listener-supported radio, and now we return you to your host. Okay, <clears throat> welcome. Welcome to the Wednesday edition of Free Association. Looks like all the technical gubbins is working properly at the moment, so we might be in for a show with no technical hitches at all, which would be a victory. <laughs> so it's going to be a, a make-it-up-as-you-go-along clip show this evening, I think. Well, it's evening for me. Because it's seven o'clock in the UK. And it's two o'clock in the afternoon on the East Coast in the States. So it's afternoon for most of the people. This we do have people who listen in Thailand and Australia and the Netherlands. All the so welcome to everybody all over the all over the planet. And I was going to start with some weather, but I don't think I'll do that because it's basically just cold and winter. So I think that's all we need to know about the weather, really. It's going to be cold and winter for the next three months. My brain doesn't need to compute 
the actual temperature. Once it goes down below five degrees, I'm just like cut off completely, not going outside. So I'm taking taking my time with everything. I've been out once today shopping. And that was literally crossing the road to the news agents, buying buying a couple of Mars bars and coming back and I was freezing cold by the time I back home. Yeah, we don't have snow as yet, but it's cold enough. And it's forecast for next week, apparently. So it's about... My computer says 6 degrees, but it's probably nearer 3 degrees. But I managed to get away with not telling Microsoft where I live. So Microsoft is somewhere completely different. Mind you, every show I tell people I'm in Newcastle, so all you've got to do is listen to the show and you'll know, but if you're just looking at data, you're not going to know. So, I, I as I was saying in the chat, I didn't sign up for cage fighting. It takes me all my time to keep Skype working, but it looks like we're all right. So, what I'm going to do is start... A series of clips I'm going to start with uh, yesterday's Kim Iverson show a clip from there I think I'll start from the beginning because it started really close to the beginning this clip So this is the uh, Iverson Show. I am Craig Pasta Jardula filling in for the lovely Kim Iverson. Let's get right to it. A crazy story that just broke the other day. I'm sure some of you saw it online. Uh, about tunnels. And no, I'm not talking about the tunnels in Gaza with Hamas. I'm talking about tunnels that were discovered in Brooklyn. Uh, take a look at this over here. The underground tunnel that sparked a riot at the synagogue the other day, the Shabbat Synagogue in Brooklyn. Uh, in an unexpected turn of events, a riot broke out at the Shabbat headquarters in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. And you can see this right here, them going crazy. The NYPD showed up with some New York construction to fill the tunnels with cement. These tunnels were discovered about three weeks ago, uh, but they wanted to stop them, some of the people within the synagogue. And this is one of the most uh, popular synagogues right now, not just in Brooklyn, but in the whole world. Um, and if you're wondering, these particular uh, Hasidic Jews, they're not so much the pro-Palestinian type. They are actually pro-Zionist. Uh, but take a look from this article over here, uh, Breaking News. Uh, it says, in a second turn uh, of events, a riot broke out at the Chabad headquarters in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, following the discovery of these built underground tunnels, these hidden, undiscovered tunnels. As law enforcement attempted to seal these tunnels 
uh, leading a leading to a severe clash between the community and the NYPD. Uh, this is just crazy, and I'm just wondering. Uh, some people had a lot of speculation on why these tunnels were there. But let's talk about the discovery of, of the tunnels. The discovery, the tunnels were discovered beneath the Chabad Lubavitch World Headquarters, a significant building in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. The clandestine construction threatened the foundation of this landmark. The revelation was made roughly three weeks ago, but investigations revealed that the construction work had been ongoing for the past six months involving several yeshiva men. This is kind of crazy. A lot of people were trying to speculate on what these tunnels are all about. Uh, one speculation, one theory is that that in case of another pandemic, if in fact they want to go to synagogue, they would have these tunnels in which they could hide. I don't know if you remember when the COVID-19 started, uh, one of the communities that was hit a lot for breaking protocols, in other words, uh, parties assembling uh, from the mayor at the particular time in New York, both mayors you know, and both governors were really pissed off about this. And they had spoken about the fact that people were not to get to gather in big parties. So they would show up the doors and they'd say, what are you doing? We're praying. We're praising. It's our religion. We're allowed to. Well, the Hasidic community got hit the hardest in New York. Uh, a lot of cops showed up on a lot of doors. So there was a lot of problems over there. So a lot of people are speculating, what is this all about? Take a look at this tweet we have up from Stu Peters over here. Of course, Stu Peters is going to say something like this. Slave tunnel. If you take a look, a lot of people were speculating, what about this mattress? You see this mattress right over here with the stain on it? What's a mattress doing down there in the first place? Is it human trafficking going on? I don't know. Is it a sex slave tunnel going on? I don't know. That's for you to decide. Is this just tunnels so they can go and pray uh, in the case of another pandemic or another situation? Nobody knows. It's just speculation across the board. It is a crazy story. But while we're on this story, let's talk about the relationship this particular uh, synagogue had with Netanyahu. Um, said the synagogues. Uh, 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 Rabbi uh, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, and he passed away in 1994, but he had a strong relationship with Netanyahu. Take a look at this video back in 1990. This is before Netanyahu was the prime minister. So it kind of gives you a different story of this particular Hasidic community where they're normally a lot very pro-Palestinian. Very different right over here. Take a look. all right, so this is Netanyahu uh, speaking to the rabbi, asking for blessings and success. So you see there was a relationship with Netanyahu in this particular synagogue and this particular rabbi, Rabbi Menashem Andel Schneerson. Uh, in fact, it goes more than just saying, hey, let's uh, have a good relationship together. God bless you and whatnot. 
Netanyahu has been on record for quoting the fact that he was inspired by this particular rabbi when he came to speeches at the UN. And this is from the Jerusalem Post right over here. Uh, you can see by Mendel Shearson, the last leader of the Shabbat Lubavitch Hasidic movement, was the inspiration for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's speech in the UN. Netanyahu said last week, following the speech in the General Assembly. Uh, the prime minister told reporters that his defense of Jewish people was inspired by Schneerson, who urged him during a 1984 discussion at the Chabad Lubavitch headquarters to light a candle of truth in his dealings with the U.N. Talking about lighting your candles, maybe he's still taking the same advice about lighting candles underground as they're moving through these tunnels. It is just crazy. Um, this is also from the times of of Israel, I want to kind of, you know, harp on this because, like we said just earlier in the this show, a lot of the Hasidic Jews and there's a lot of communities in, in inside Israel themselves in which they are very pro-Palestinian. Not this particular uh, group of Hasidic Jews, especially Rabbi Schneerson, before he passed away uh, many years ago. Netanyahu tweets, "Quote of Lubavitcher Rebbe: God is on this side, our side." Benjamin Netanyahu tweets a message to his rivals this morning that today is the Hebrew anniversary of the death of Menashem Mendel Schneerson, the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Netanyahu writes, I am reminded of comments made to me by the rabbi of Lubavitch. You will need to fight with 119 people, but you will certainly not be impressed by this as God is on this side, a blessing and success to you. God will give blessing and success. Uh, this is just such an odd story, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, I don't even know what to make of it. You know, immediately when I saw this, I thought for a second, I'm like, oh, okay. So here's the Netanyahu government ratting out some of the Hasidic Jews that are going to be pro-Palestinian. But as we dug deeper, we found that it was the opposite, and they are actually connected. The New York police had showed up, had discovered that. They wanted to fill them with cement. But that's why that riot broke out. Um, it's something we have to talk about. The, the rabbi's message to Netanyahu, the prophecy for today, Rabbi David Nashon, uh, a personal friend of uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, discusses the special relationship between the Lubavitch Rebbe and Netanyahu. So there was this relationship between Netanyahu and whatnot. Uh, so, I mean, what to say? It's an odd Funny story, but I mean, we have to report on it. And I think we're going to have to pay attention in the long run of what's to come. Uh, there was a, a, a tweet there where somebody was coming out of the underground tunnel out of, out of like almost like a, a grid, a, a floor grid, a drainage situation. Here it is. Take a look at this. This is so odd. It's just crazy. Uh, he, and watch how he'll smack away the camera from the guy. Get away from me. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> So some people didn't get away. So at one point, the uh, police attempt to start arresting and bring people out. They did arrest many people. Um, however, there was a comment on the Twitter from the, the Lubavitch uh, Twitter, uh, the, their official Twitter. And take a look at this tweet, tweet right here. Uh, the statement by the Chabad Lubavitch headquarters. The Chabad Lubavitch community is pained by the vandalism of a group of young agitators. As you can see, they're trying to blame it on a group of young ag agitators who damaged the synagogue below Shabbat headquarters at 77 Eastern 
excuse me, 70, 70, 70, 770 Eastern Parkway Monday night, just in case you guys want to go by there. These odious actions will be investigated and the sanctity of the synagogue will be restored. Our thanks to the New York Police Department for their professionalism and their sensitivity. We are grateful for the outpouring of concern and for the support of our Chabad Lubavitch institutions around the world. And that is by Rabbi Yehuda Krinsky, and he happens to be the chairman. As you know, there is a relationship between the Zionist government, the IDF, and the New York Police Department. So they're keeping it very copacetic over here. But, man, this is just a crazy, crazy story. Um, but a little bit more on top of this over here, we should look at this Torah Ju Judaism uh, and take a look at the statements. Because we want to kind of point out the fact that, once again, even though they are Hasidic Jews, they are not pro-Palestinian whatsoever. They are pro-Zionist. An important statement about the tunnels under the synagogue in Brooklyn, New York. Walking a tightrope, Chabad's complicated relationship with Zionism. It was never, ever really known up front. Uh, Chabad Lubavitch anti-Zionism Torah is, in, is a great danger to the Jewish community. The synagogue where the tunnels are located belongs to the Chabad Lubavitch community, a structure known for support of Zionism and Israel. In particular, the Chabad Lubavitch rabbis have secret agreements and complicated relationships with the Netanyahu and the Israeli state, the Netanyahu government and the Israeli state. They are the community that supports Zionism the most in the Holy Land. In the past, they appeared to be anti-Zionism. Later, as a result of information that emerged, it was revealed that the secret that, that, that they, excuse me, secretly supported Zionism. When I grew up in the 1970s, explains Chem Rapport, a British Chabad rabbi, author, and scholar, my friend to the right from Satmar or Brisk would harass me by saying the Reb was a Zionist. Whereas my friends from the left would taunt me that the Reb was anti-Israel. Still today, one hears both of these arguments. For me, as a Lubavitcher, I see the Reb as having uh, posed an extremely nuanced position on walking a tightrope. So they always don't want they don't want to reveal their positions necessarily. But we saw that Rabbi Schneer having a serious relationship with the Netanyahu government, with Netanyahu himself, Netanyahu actually quoting him. Um, so this is the first story of the day. Ladies and gentlemen, this is so odd. I mean, I don't even know what to say. I don't even know what to make of it. What do you think the tunnels are for? That's for you to decide. You know, uh, some people think that in case of another pandemic, they'll have a place to go and pray without the New York Police Department coming and knocking on their doors, knocking on the synagogue. Because remember, a lot of people were arrested for, you know, uh, congregating together they had these mandates in place and they also had these rules which they didn't want to have any more than six we uh, saw videos of them knocking on doors and saying how many people you got upstairs and it would be more than six and the new york police department would get very agitated so i mean we shouldn't come or draw any conclusions until this is played out but obviously there was a group of people it's funny how the synagogue itself is blaming it on a group of young radical you know uh people their own community that are going, you know, uh, out of the way to make sure that these tunnels are underground and they're acting like the whole community did not know of these things. So it's just an odd, crazy story, ladies and gentlemen, someone we have to pay attention to. I don't know what to make of it. We'll keep close eye. You can see them on the ground over there, you know, drinking, praying, whatnot. Uh, the New York Police Department had a, a little bit of a, they had their hand full, but eventually they arrested some of the 
uh, the, the the men that were there, uh, they were. All right, so that's uh, 15 minutes of the Kim Iverson show from yesterday. I don't think there's very much news on this story. I think it's it's going to go kind of quiet for a couple of weeks. It's obviously some kind of political uh, manoeuvring going on as well as the actual story. Uh, it's, a, it's a distraction story as much as anything. I mean, it's a, it's a serious story. It could lead to some very serious um, investigations, but it's also a distraction from from a genocide that's going on in Gaza. So we'll have to wait and see how it develops. And I was saying, I was saying in the chat, there's a there's a lift being replaced in this building. There's only there's only one lift, and it needs to be replaced. It makes odd noises during the night I'm, I'm my apartment's right next to the lift and uh, I think the workmen are down they, they use the basement to do whatever they need to do so there's a lot of banging and drilling going on in in the background here you probably won't hear it because I'll just play videos and you will probably won't notice but I'll notice and it is a little bit distracting. So if, if if there is moments of silence with drilling, it's because I'm being being a little bit distracted by uh, by hammering and construction work. But we'll we'll carry on. So let me try another geopolitics video. I think. I was going to play Alex Christoforo. I might still play that one because it's more entertaining than Alexander Mercurius. I could speed Alexander Mercurius up a little bit. But I think Alex Christoforo's got a little bit more kind of pizzazz about him in the way he describes things. So let's try that one. It should take us through. Right, let me slice it from the beginning. Bear with me two seconds. Oh, there's advertising on here as well. Gaia is advertising. I think Gaia is a psyop, personally. I've never particularly been impressed with Gaia. What if you could get rid of long tent setup forever? Right, I'm going to have to skip the advertising, so it's going to get a bit messy. Hey, I'm Michael from Re Seconds 10. Three seconds. Right, let's start from the beginning. Do you believe the Bible? And I mean, really believe it. Here in Israel, we are living in the reality. Move this on. Here we go. Sure. 
This is my video update on this Wednesday, mid-day, January the 10th. Let's talk about some news and let's start things off with this Politico article. Macron goes all in with high stakes reshuffle to combat far right as France's youngest ever PM, Gabriel Attal, will have to save Macron's legacy though he may have eyes to eclipse it. So the new prime minister of France, Gabriel Attal, 35 years old, young guy, he has been brought in by Macron in order to preserve Macron's legacy and to prevent the rise of Marine Le Pen, the rise of the far right and far right elements in France. That is why they brought Atal in and he is taking over for the prime minister who in October, I forgot her name, but who said in October of 2022 that the French sanctions against Russia were meant to suffocate the Russian economy. Suffocate the Russian economy and lead to Putin's fall. <laughs> That's what she said in 2022. French EU sanctions would suffocate Russia, suffocate that Russian economy. Anyway, uh, that statement from the former prime minister who was who was forced to resign, effectively fired. That statement did not age well. Macron is uh, is very unpopular. He is uh, destroying France, doing a terrible job as president of France. And so now they have Atal in the position of prime minister. And they believe that this is going to help Macron's legacy, help his administration's approval ratings. But, but this is not only about preserving Macron's legacy and not only about pre- preventing the rise of the far right. What this is really about, in my opinion, is introducing the man who will take over for Macron. That is what this is really all about. This is the globalists, the neoliberal Klaus Schwab uh, puppet masters introducing France, introducing to the world, introducing the world to the man that will take over for Macron. And when you look at a photo of Macron and you look at a photo of Atal, pretty much the same dude (laughs) it's just a younger version of macron same look same uh same hairstyle same suit same tie it's pretty much the same guy just a new version of macron a more popular version of uh of a very unpopular macron this is who the globalists have uh, chosen to be the next leader of france That's what this is really all about. And even Politico hints at that when they say that uh, Atal, yes, he he is being brought in to preserve, to save Macron's legacy, but he may have eyes to eclipse it. That is what Politico um, wrote in their article. So even they are hinting at the fact that this is the guy that's going to take over for Macron. Swap Macron out with the next... The next guy off the the assembly line, (laughs) off the Klaus Schwab assembly line. 
It's how democracy works, everybody. That is how democracy works. So um, they're pretty much doing the same thing in Germany, to be quite honest. They're taking a different approach, but they're, they're going to swap out Olaf Scholz for the current defense minister, Mr. Pistorius. And, and Pistorius has a better approval rating than Schultz, a much better approval rating than Schultz. But uh, he's still, he's still uh, loyal to the globalist, neoliberal, uh, Project Ukraine, warmonger ideology. He's still loyal to all of that stuff. Uh, he does have a better approval rating than Schultz. Schultz's approval rating is, is in the gutter. And so it does look like that Schultz is on his way out. Exit stage left. Ola Schultz and bring in Pistorius. Change the name, change the face, but the policy, the ideology, the trajectory the deindustrialization, militarization stays, stays on course. Project Ukraine stays on course. And as Schultz exits, I believe Schultz will exit very soon um, as he prepares his exit stage left. Schultz is making sure that he leaves Ukraine, Project Ukraine, on solid footing. And that is why Schultz the other day, he told EU member states that it's time for them to, uh, to pick up the slack, to carry some of the uh, bins and funding weight that, uh, that Germany and the U.S. has been uh, giving to Project Ukraine. Germany is number two when it comes to weapons and money to Project Ukraine. The U.S. is number one. And Olaf Scholz, he put out in, uh, in a statement yesterday that the EU needs to, needs to start upping the amount of weapons and money they hand over to Project Ukraine. Basically, Olaf Schultz, uh, he wants the EU member states to commit in writing what they plan to, to give the Ilensky regime, what money and what weapons they're going to hand over to the Ilensky regime. That is what Schultz wants to see happen before he leaves. <laughs> yeah, Germany's been been uh, stripped to the bone according to this to this title the german chancellor's plea comes amid warnings that his country military has been stripped to the bone it doesn't have any more any more weapons and not much more money to to hand over to project ukraine and so it's time for everyone else to to start doing their part to keep project ukraine rolling on one thing that Germany will give over to, to Ukraine is going to be those Taurus missiles. They're going to give over the Taurus missiles, and that'll be that. The Taurus missiles will go to Olensky. EU member states will, will make some sort of written pledge as to what they, they plan to, to give to Project Ukraine over the next uh, one to four years. And uh, Schultz is, is out. Pistorius is in. That's what I think the plan is going to be. So Schultz is doing his part to please his, his overlords. And the one man who, who has been resisting Project Ukraine from the very beginning, the Prime Minister of Hungary, Mr. Viktor Orban, he has set out his terms 
for the approval of the 50 billion euros that the union wants to hand over to the Alevsky regime. Now, keep in mind, these 50 billion euros that they want to give over to the Alevsky regime is over four years. So 12.5 or 12.6 billion euros every year. And uh, and Durban, he has been vetoing this proposal. He has said that Hungary is not on board with uh, just writing a blank check of 12.5 billion to Ukraine every year. And this has really pissed off the European Union. Very upset with Orban. They're very upset with Orban's behavior, with his attitude. And uh, Orban, well, his country is owed something like 30 billion from the European Union. They've uh, held 30 billion euros in cohesion funds from, uh, from Hungary in the hopes that the Hungarian economy would suffer and that Orban would, uh, would step down as prime minister or would be voted out or removed as prime minister. That is why the European Union has been holding back on giving Hungary the 30 billion euros that is rightfully theirs. It's 20 20 billion or 30 billion. I I forget the number. It's somewhere in that range. But uh, Orban wants that money because that money is Hungary's money. And uh, and his terms, Orban's terms, in order to vote yes for the 50 billion to Project Ukraine is that every year before the money gets dispersed, before they disperse 12.5 billion to the Alensky regime, that every year this money has to be voted on by all the member states and they have to uh, they have to have some sort of transparency some sort of accountability and audit as to as to what this money is going to be used for where this money is going to go those are his terms every year we need approval by all the EU member states and we need some accountability for this money now uh, reasonable terms, very reasonable terms, if you ask me, right? You're sending money to the most corrupt uh, country in all of Europe, one of the most corrupt countries in all the world. I would imagine that before you send the money, it would be good to have some transparency and some accountability, especially given the fact that the entire European Union is pretty much in recession and really doesn't have the money to spare. But uh, but either way, this is what's been decided. 50 billion to Ukraine over four years. So Orban wants for this to be voted on and to be approved. Now, this is really freeing out the EU kleptocrats. And they're afraid that what this does is that it gives Orban leverage over the European Union every single year every year when this 12.5 billion comes up for a vote it's going to give orban the ability to extract something from the european union in return for his yes vote and uh yeah (laughs) they're absolutely right this is a great move from orban a great move from orban and every year before he gives the approval for the 12.5 billion 
to be vanished in a hole that is known as Alensky, <laughs> the Alensky regime, if the Alensky regime is even around after a year, nevertheless, four years. But uh, every time this money is voted on, Orban can, uh, can tell the EU, OK, let me see where this money's going to go. OK, OK, I see this money's going to go there. That money's going to go there. Now, uh, before I vote yes, you guys owe me 20 billion. Release 5 billion, release 10 billion, and I'll give you my yes vote. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely brilliant move from Orban. And, and the EU, they recognize this and they're afraid of this, which indicates to me, it indicates that the European Union has no intention of returning the, the 20, 30, 10 billion, whatever they owe Hungary. They don't have the money. They don't intend to give that money to Hungary. And that is why they are freaking out over this proposal for Orban. Of course, the EU also doesn't want any transparency and accountability for the, the money that's going to be sent to Ukraine. They also don't want any of that going on. But uh, a brilliant move from Orban. Those are his terms in order to, to vote yes on this 50 billion. And this has upset uh, EU officials so much that one of the parliament members for Finland is actually putting out a petition to remove Hungary's right to vote. Petri Sarvama, a parliament member for Finland in the European Union, put out this post on Twitter X, launched a historic petition, which, if successful, will allow Mr. Orban to be deprived of the right to vote in the council. <laughs> the, uh, the wording of that, uh, that post, huh? Will allow... Match, make a match, make a make me a match. At Auto Trader, you could win an electric car. Every month we're giving one away. will allow Mr. Orban to be deprived of the right to vote. <laughs> These guys, man. These guys. <laughs> will allow Orban the right to be deprived. <laughs> We're doing you a favor, uh, Hungary. <laughs> We're going to allow you to be deprived of your right to vote. <laughs> so if, uh, if this petition actually gains momentum and is actually uh, actually approved. I don't know in what form or how this, this, this happens, but let's just say this, this petition is adopted and the European Union takes the nuclear decision of removing Hungary's right to vote. What, uh, what incentive does Hungary then have to be in the European Union at that point? The EU is, uh, is stealing your money <laughs> They're not releasing the money that's owed to you. They've removed your right to vote. They treat you like a third-class uh, member. What what reason is there to be in the European Union at that point in time? Just just get out then. Uh, no reason to be in the EU. Anyway, that's the that's the freak out from the European Union. They are suffering from a very bad case of uh, Orban derangement syndrome (ODS). You have. Uh, TDS, Trump Derangement Syndrome, 
you have, uh, let's see, Putin derangement syndrome, PDS. <laughs> now you have uh, ODS. They are all suffering from Orban derangement syndrome. And you know the story uh, that I talked about a couple of, uh, of days ago about the council president, uh, Charles Michel, and the fact that he's going to be resigning, stepping down as council president so that he can run for uh, the EU parliament for, uh, for Belgium. Uh, a smart move by Michel, a very smart move. He knows that Project Ukraine is going to collapse and he doesn't want to be in the council president seat when it does collapse. So he's basically coming up with, uh, with the plan to run for, for the EU parliament. And because he's going to run for the EU parliament, it's a conflict of interest to run for parliament. He's being council president, so he's going to have to step down as council president. Very clever move from Michel anyway, um, because he's, he's stepping down as council president at a time when Hungary is going to be uh, the, the, uh, the t- taking over the rotating uh, uh, presidency in the European Union when, uh, when Charles Michel does step down. It's going to coincide with the time when Hungary is going to be taking over as president of the European Union. Well, that means that if the EU cannot find a replacement for Michel quickly, then Orban is going to assume, he's going to have to assume the role of council president. And this is, this has freaked them out in a big way. So they're now scrambling to prevent this from happening in the next uh, few months, even four to six months, when and if this does happen, they're scrambling to find a replacement to Michelle. And the Financial Times is now reporting that the EU may have found just the right guy to take over temporarily for Charles Michel when he steps down and prevent Harbon from uh, assuming the council presidency, Orban sitting next to, to Ursula. <laughs> Wouldn't that be something, huh? Ursula on one side, Orban on the other side as they run the European Union. Ooh, every EU kleptocrat's nightmare, their worst nightmare, their second worst nightmare. I imagine Orban and, and, and Putin would be their worst nightmare. Or Orban being being there as council president. Yeah, that's making them flip out. And so anyway, the Financial Times, they they are floating out the name of Mario Draghi. (laughs) Yeah, Mario Draghi. That is who they say can take over for Michel when he steps down. Mario Draghi floated as potential European council president, according to the Financial Times. Mario Draghi. You know uh, what Mario Draghi is? I'm going to tell you what Mario Draghi is. He's that, uh, that player on, on a sports team that understands and can play every single position. <laughs> every position he can play it on the field. You name it, he can play it. So you call him up from the bench and go to any position. Any, any freaking position on the team, he understands his role. He's not the best. He's not the best at a certain position. He's not an expert at a certain position, 
but he can play every position. He's the, he's the ultimate utility player that you can call up from the bench. That is Mario Taki. Whenever, whenever the EU runs into any sort of problem, an election that didn't go their way, <laughs> uh, someone's resigning and they need to, to plug up a hole, call up Mario Draghi. We need someone to head up the ECB, Mario Draghi. We need someone to be prime minister of Italy, Mario Draghi. We need someone to take over for Michelle uh, as council president, Mario Draghi. <laughs> the ultimate uh, utility player. That's Mario Draghi. And so it looks like he's going to be called up to take over the position of president, according to the Financial Times. Have to prevent Orban from being council president. Boy, would that drive them crazy. Anyway, let's. All right. So that's the uh, that's the part of the Alex Christoforou walk and talk video that I watched this afternoon. So there's another, there's another 15 minutes or so just under. I'm not going to play it all. I might play some of it in the second half, but uh, I think we need a break from the voice. I think 15 or 20 minutes of anybody is probably enough, including me. <laughs> I don't I don't like talking for more than 15 or 20 minutes at a time. But... Uh, that's the way we are. We've got we've got about twelve minutes of the first part of the show, which is the geopolitics part. I haven't decided what I'm doing in the second hour yet. I'll work that out in the three minutes I've got as a break at the top of the hour. But it is it is called free association for a reason. It's whatever's in my head, and whatever whatever keywords and whatever route through the interwebs I managed to find. Uh, what else have we got? I'm going to play a little bit of Alexander Mercurius, but he's a little bit dull. And he's not really... I, I listened to some of it this afternoon, and he's not really saying anything very much. So I'm going to skip him for this week. I'll maybe play him next week. Let's see what else we've got. We've got a... A live edition of the Dark podcast going on as we speak on you and rumble um, I've got a couple of clips that will play from yes it is edition of redacted I think I might go with one or, one or two of those in the second half trying to keep a balance between the geopolitics and Other, other material, because I don't want the geopolitics to take over. It's already more or less taken over the Saturday show, so I don't. what I don't want it to do is take over this one, but there's a lot of it about at the moment. There's a lot of chessboard moves happening, so we have to kind of look at them. Uh, well, we go. We've got a bit, of Fauci, a bit of Fauci report from... From Kim Joy last night as well, maybe for the second half. I don't know yet. We'll have to, we'll have to decide as we go along. So, let's.
let's do let's do a little bit of that and see how we get along with it. But it's something I thought, well, I've heard a lot of people say that they get really good sleep. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Kim Iverson Show. Craig Pastardula filling in for Kim Iverson. Uh, great story to talk about right now. Um, man, Fauci is testifying on Capitol Hill for the next two days. In fact, it's already uh, been finished. Today was the second day, but we have an update from the first day um, and from CBS News. And this is great over here. Uh, these testimonies are happening behind closed doors. But take a look at this right here. And this is from CBS News. We have a video, too, of Dr. Fauci I'm going to go through. Because a lot of us, including in this particular show here, I was very proud of Kim when she was doing this work on the Hill uh, and, and on the combo couch. Me, Fiorella, and Johnny were always breaking down the day-to-day. -day. We were following COVID in real time. Uh, and it, it's not common for leftists like myself to do so. Uh, a lot of people, they went along with what the mainstream media told them. And you're going to see right here the mainstream media is still providing cover for Dr. Fauci and the government. It's kind of a sleight of hand uh, where they're going to focus really and they're going to try to push this off on a natural occurrence, the bat soup, uh, the Chinese government. But right now it's through Congress. So take a look at this. The Republican-led panel headed up by Republican Representative Brad Winstrup of Ohio will conduct 14 hours of interviews across the next two days. The House GOP staff said, Questions will focus on the origins of the pandemic, vaccines and mandates, among other things. The interviews are taking place behind closed doors. So this is going to be very interesting uh, as it comes along. I mean, I, I talked about the sleight of hand, and it's very, very important to, uh, to point that out because I think they're going to constantly talk about other entities that need to come into play. You know, the one thing that was great about RFK when he started running was he was talking about this in particular right here. It's more than just Dr. Fauci, right? It's about the military. It's about bioweapons testing. Uh, it's about finding a cure. But if you want to find the cure, you have to produce the virus itself. So should we really be doing that? Should we be playing God? Um, so the whole, pro the whole thing I want you to focus on more than anything is that the process itself illegal, especially since the Patriot Act came out, that reopened the door. So it's a lot about the United States, the military and the complex, the intelligence agencies, and what they're allowed to do, uh, ignoring treaties that we had signed with other major countries like Russia and China, where we're supposed to scale back this type of bioweapons testing. And that's why when it comes to China and Russia and other major uh, big countries, if the United States has it, then they have to have it. That's the only way they combat it. It's like we have a big sub fleet. China has to have a big sub fleet. We're doing bioweapons testing. They have to do bioweapons testing. It's tick for tat. And remember, right after the invasion or the military actions by Russia into the Ukraine, about 14 bio labs were hit. Those labs were being proven to be funding by the Pentagon and the State Department. So really, to tell you the truth, when I look at this situation, I don't like to point the finger at China or bat soup or a wet market or whatnot or an accident. I like to look inward. I like to look at our actions. How can we be responsible for our, our own government's actions? And we will in actual real time. So let's get into this video over here because the mainstream media is still providing cover. And this is by CBS News. I don't know the name of this interviewer here, but you don't need to know the name of the interviewer because you can just plug and play. 
any particular person. They keep rotating these people because they're just going to read the script. Take a look at Dr. Fauci over here. We're going to go through this. We've got about five different clips we're going to play, and then we'll talk about each clip as they come up. Uh, and just watch the excuses over here. My God. of American life shut down as we all headed inside in an attempt to avoid a deadly virus. Since then, COVID-19 has taken the lives of more than 1.1 million people in the United States and 6.8 million people worldwide. And while we were watching from home, Dr. Anthony Fauci was a consistent presence, briefing on the emerging science and recommending next steps. It's not the time to feel that since we have made such important advance in the sense of success of the mitigation that we need to be pulling back at all. We have to proceed in a very careful, measured way. If these things are done correctly, what I believe they can, we will have and there will be enough tests to allow us to take this country safely through phase one. And there's bright news in the fight against this global pandemic. According to the World Health Organization, fewer people are dying from the virus today than any time in the past three years. You just saw that right there. Once again, the mainstream media providing cover. He was a constant, consistent voice, you know, and look how many people, this deadly virus and stuff. This led a lot into the rules that were changed from the elections because of this situation. But I ask you, and once again, I'm not saying that this is still not a thing that the coronavirus came out, but how many people died because they had other ailments? Remember, the majority of people who died from this particular virus didn't vi die from the virus itself. They had other ailments. They had other lung disease. All right, so we've got another, what, about another half an hour or so from the Kim Iverson show last night. The reports are good. I'll, the 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 level of detail is, is pretty good. So I'm going to play the rest of that when we get back into the second hour, I think. Uh, just a reminder, Revolution Radio is uh, entirely listener-supported. We do need your help to keep the lights on. So if you can make a contribution financially, you can do that at revolution.radio. Uh, look for a place to make donations, either by, by a Patreon or... Um, there's lots of different ways to do cryptocurrency. Oh, there's a lot of different ways to make donations. So just have a have a look on the donations page at revolution.radio and you'll find a way. And uh, if you can't afford to do it financially, come down and say hello in the chat room and participate in the shows that way and support the station that way. Uh, and we're a, a friendly, if opinionated, bunch. That's probably the best way to, to phrase it. Everybody's got opinions. Sometimes people keep them to themselves. I tend to keep my opinions to myself and just play other people's clips. But I do still have opinions sometimes. Anyway, that's, that's the break coming up. So we've got four minutes of bumpers, and I shall see you in about three minutes' time.
Ageless.com. We'll be right back after this message. Ladies and gentlemen, your lives are becoming more difficult as the life force of your world is draining away. Have you noticed that as everything around you seems to decline, one thing still grows? It is the power of your rulers. None of their plans and directives have solved your problems or made your life better. The only result is their increased control over you at the cost of your freedom. Do you know why? You gave them the power. They called for your sacrifice, and you thought it was noble. They said if you worked for yourself and your family, that you were selfish and uncaring. And they made you feel ashamed. They denounced the leaders of industry as greedy exploiters. You agreed. All evil needs to win is the consent of good people. To everyone with a range of my voice, you now have a choice to make. If you decide to support the notion of sacrifice enforced by the state, your game is up. Your world is in a downward spiral and you will ride it down to destruction. But if you share the values, if you believe that your life is a sacred possession for you to make the most of, if you want to live by the judgment of your own mind, not edicts from the state, then follow our lead. Do not support your own oppressors. Stop letting the system exploit you. Form your own communities on the frontiers of your crumbling world. Your rulers hold you by your endurance to carry the burdens they impose, by your generosity when you hear cries of despair, and above all, by your innocence which cannot grasp the depths of their evil. The world you are living in is the world they want. Leave them to it. Those who are eager to build a better world, a world of freedom and opportunity, a world based on mutual respect, in that world you will not receive alms, nor pity, nor forgiveness of sins, but honor, respect, and justice. Don't let the fire go out spark by irreplaceable spark in confusion and despair. The world you desire can be one. It exists. It is real. It is possible. It is yours. Revolution Radio, freedomslips.com, the number one listener-supported radio station on the Internet. It's your world. Take it. Thank you for listening to Revolution Radio, freedomslips.com, the number one listener-supported radio station on the Internet. Please help support this station so this battle can continue forward. Revolution Radio!
Thank you for listening to Revolution Radio at Lips.com. Any commercial advertising you may hear in this program is of the sole discretion and benefit of the host of whose program you are listening to. Revolution Radio does not endorse any commercial product, nor does it accept monetary compensation for on-air advertising of commercial products, nor will it ever. We are and shall remain 100% listener-supported. Any product advertising on this program are considered used at risk, and Revolution Radio shall not be held liable for any claims or damages received from any product advertised within this program. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps. The opinions expressed on this radio station, its programs, and its website by the hosts, guests, and call-in listeners or chatters are solely the opinions of the original source who expressed them. They do not necessarily represent the opinions of Russian Radio and FreedomSlips.com, its staff, or affiliates. You're listening to Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com, 100% listener-supported radio, and now we return you to your host... All right, you are indeed listening to Revolution Radio. Uh, the show's called Free Association. I'm here on Saturdays and on Wednesdays. My name's Dennis, hosting and occasionally chipping in with personal experience or uh, some kind of insight or a, a creepy cult leader of the week sometimes or... Various. I, I try and keep it creative and keep it varied. It tends to be geopolitics moment, and uh, Fauci's one that we won't go away. So we've got about half an hour of this report from the Kim Iverson show last night, just to keep keep us going. It's just over half an hour, and then I'll figure out something else to talk about and to play. And we'll maybe have a There's a few people in the chat room. So you can potentially have a half an hour's chat at the end of the show just with the chat room. We'll see. This is Craig uh, Jardulo, I think his name is. Craig Jardulo standing in for Kim Iverson. They were high in age. They were obese. So once again, not excusing that, saying there's a lot of people saying, yeah, that obese guy died. He didn't die because he was obese. He died because he was obese and, you know, it's tit for tat, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg. But it seemed like, you know, this pushed them over the edge. But once again, it's about the other ailments that were there. So when you're putting up and also the way they classified this particular uh, situation when it came to the COVID-19, you know, a lot of times that they somebody would die from something else, a heart issue or whatnot, but they would still be listed because they were the, the hospitals were fine were getting incentives financially to list people as a COVID death. Uh, in Florida there was a situation where a guy died in a motorcycle accident. They brought him to the hospital, they gave him a COVID test, he had COVID and they listed his death as COVID. Why? Because it was financial incentives through the CARES Act signed by Donald Trump for this, whatnot, you know, for the, for these incentives. So it's something to just pay attention to. Let's roll the next clip. Anthony Fauci joins me now. He's the former director of the National Institute of Energy and Infectious 
diseases. It's good to be with you, Dr. Fauci. Thank you. Three years after the pandemic started, and there is still a debate over its origins. How important is it that a conclusion be reached about how this pandemic started? Well, it's quite important, John, because you want to make sure that you put into place uh, things that would make it very, very unlikely and hopefully impossible for something like this to happen again. Now, uh, since there really is no definitive proof, there are two possibilities that people discuss. And we might not ever know precisely and definitively. So probably what we should be doing right now, until we get the definitive information, which we might not ever get, is to put into place those mechanisms which would make it very clear that it would happen again. For example, if in fact it did evolve from a laboratory in which people were working in the laboratory, we need to put into place globally and internationally enforceable guidelines about what kinds of experiments should be done and the conditions under which they can be done. If it was from a natural occurrence, from an animal species, an animal reservoir to a human, then we've got to make sure we pay very close attention to the animal-human interface and make sure we can enforce those regulations that don't allow the bringing of animals that could be infected in the wild into wet markets, the way we've seen in Wuhan and the way we've seen in other outbreaks like SARS-CoV-1 and other outbreaks like that. So we need to do whatever the origin is, we need to make sure that all the possibilities are covered. And then until we do know, which we might not ever know, let's get going with it and doing what needs to be due to prevent it from happening again. There's a whatever we need to do in the stuff that's highly unlikely. Yeah, it's unlikely that it jumped from bat soup or a bat in a wet market to a human species highly unlikely it is more likely that it came out of a lab now you can debate whether it was purposely let out it was accidentally let out i'm not going to discuss that right now but i'm pretty sure that it came from a lab and that's the thing what do we need to put in place yeah we need to hold people accountable like yourself who made money off what came after this a vaccine right uh, and it would seem like you had a lot of incentives to make sure that there could be a vaccine for something like this. And I'm not going to say anything. You know, the CDC vaccine is safe and effective, so we won't talk about that. But there's a lot of things he said in that last statement that make a lot of people squirm. Talked about global, global entities. We need to put in place global powers, right? And that's a buzzword for a lot of people who talk about, wait a second, places like the WHO want to be able to bypass our constitution in the case of the next pandemic. They even have a treaty going on and guidelines that they are trying to change so they can give themselves power. So here, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who has a history, not a good history, go back to the AIDS pandemic situation, and then you'll see his history, a ATC, right? Uh, all that situation that's going on, or is it ACT? I get them mixed up, but they, you know the particular drugs. Uh, it makes you get a little suspicious about trusting Dr. Fauci. So believe you me, there's a lot of people who are talking about it. And in all fairness, when people were talking about it possibly coming out of a lab, people like Dr. Fauci, government and the Democrats, including the president at the time, Donald Trump, 
who said maybe, possibly, this could have come from a lab. So, in all fairness, if we're going to listen to anybody, it's not going to be you again, Dr. Fauci. Uh, so I'm very, very curious to see what comes out of these next two days when we talk about his behind-the-closed-doors meeting. So, things to take from, uh, into account right there. He's saying we need to be able to act, even though it was a disaster. And the information coming from him was a disaster. This guy wants more power or his entity to have more powers. Hey, if you mess up, you're not going to get a second chance. You should be fired, not uh, given a promotion. Let's play it in the next video and see what you think about this. There's a congressional committee that's been tasked with finding out the origins of COVID-19. Do you think such a committee can actually get to the bottom of that? And would you testify? Oh, of course, uh, I would absolutely t testify. I've testified before uh, Congress hundreds of times. I, I am perfectly happy to testify if asked, and I certainly will do that. Um, well, what we need to do uh, is, is get better cooperation and transparency. The only way we're going to find out, John, definitively is if we are allowed to be able to do surveillance of the animals that are being brought in from the wild into the wet market. One of the unfortunate things that happened is when the outbreak became apparent that that Wuhan market animals that in fact should not have been there to begin with. And we know from photographic proof that there were animals that should not have been available in a wet market situation were there. But as soon as the outbreak became apparent, those animals were cleaned out and the entire place was cleaned out. That's going to make it much more difficult to definitively determine if, in fact, the origin was in that wet market. And Wow. Once again, um, man, when Dr. Fauci keeps talking about this wet market, right, even though they say the probability of a dropping, uh, jumping, excuse me, from a bat to a uh, human is slim to none. It's almost like that movie uh, Dumb and Dumber when uh, uh, Jim Carrey's uh, character, Lloyd, asked Mary Swenson or Mary Swanson, hey, so what do you think the chances of us getting together are? One in five, one in 10, one in 100, one in 1,000, one in a million? Just give it to me. Just give it to me. And she says one in a million. He goes, so you're still saying there's a chance. That's Dr. Fauci here. Holding on to that, still saying there's a chance because he understands, too, that this has been made political. And regardless that the fact that the some of the Republicans, some of the Republicans are coming after him, they still are predominantly anti-Chinese. So if he can still push this over on the Chinese, I mean, one thing he does have in his favor when it comes to the Wuhan a facility that it is a military facility. So a lot of people always have to question what role did the Chinese play? But it's obvious from all the evidence coming out, Ralph Barrick's statements, uh, the BioWestern te testing for a long time. Remember when Fauci, and here he's agreeing to talk and, and testify. Well, he purged himself. Uh, Dr. Paul went after him about it at one point. No, Dr. Paul, you are factually incorrect. It did not happen. But if it did happen, it could have happened in North Carolina. I mean, it's just bizarre the way they let this guy off the hook and the financial connections between him and Bill Gates. They're there in broad light. Uh, this guy shouldn't be he shouldn't be in charge of a veterinarian clinic in Boca Raton over there on Federal Highway. That's how bad this guy is. I wouldn't let this guy near 
any type of bioweapons testing or any type of testing whatsoever. Let's look at this next part once again, because then he hammers down right now again on the global governance part. This is the part where a lot of people, their hair stands up on the back of their necks. Um, and he talks about the cure. Once again, this is so odd. And people have talked out against this. Like, well, you can only get the cure if you create the disease. And that's the big problem, because creating the disease or the virus itself is how we get in trouble. And you're breaking treaties. But once again, the Patriot Act, it was not just about spying on you. Like I said before, this was the genius of RFK when I was excited about him running until he had his position that was so odd trying to be the peace cannon on Israel. But let's stick over here. Here he was good. Here is Dr. Fauci talking about global governance and actually about creating the cure. But it's a bad, a big no-no because to create the cure, you got to create the virus. That's bad. You've, we've been talking about this in the context, of course, of the next one. And, and you've named some ongoing challenges. One is uh, lab safety needs to be improved. And I wonder, I'll name a couple of others. Tell me which ones you think deserve the most attention and focus. Um, so you've mentioned lab safety. There's poor airborne filtration systems, which Joe Allen of Harvard has talked a lot about. The, the public health network seems to have been, uh, seems to be weak in terms of getting information out. There's vaccine skepticism. And then there's the question also of global detection of the next one, being able to find it quickly to put procedures in place. Which of those or or you can pick your own, requires the most attention and focus now to avoid or at least mitigate the next, uh, pandemic we might face. Well, I'd have to say, John, and I'm not waffling by saying this, all of the above, everything you mentioned is, in fact, quite important. If you look at the history of what happened, the big success story in our response to this outbreak has been the scientific response the decades of investment that was made in basic and clinical biomedical research that have made it possible for us to do something that would have been unimaginable years ago. Namely, take a virus in which you know what the sequence is in January of 2020 and within 11 months have a vaccine that has been proven in a clinical trial of tens of thousands of people to be safe and highly effective. That never would have happened. So the success story in the outbreak is the scientific one. The one that was not quite as successful as we would have liked has been the public health. That was one of the ah. four that you mentioned. We've really got to strengthen our local public health capability to modernize it. We've got to have international transparency and we've got to have interaction and cooperation so that when something appears anywhere in the world, that's of pandemic potential. It is so clear now that that's a danger everywhere in the world. And those are the things that. Those are the things that we want to be able to dictate with our authoritarianism to make sure that you do what we say, you plebs. That was the thing. And you see the way the mainstream media just sets these guys up. Vaccine skepticism is kind of slipped on in with what happened, you know, with the, the, the virus itself or the. The origins itself, they're going to slip that in there. You know, oh, the breakthrough was on science. That's where we succeeded, where you made millions of dollars, you know, and it's been tested on tens of thousands of people. Well, Dr. Fauci, how come it normally takes eight, nine, 10, 12 years for a vaccine to get, you know, authorized? OK, uh, because it, we have to see the long term effects. 
This happened Operation Warp Speed. Why you have to blame Donald Trump as he was bringing on Woody Johnson from the Johnson family in his earlier rallies. I think he finally got the point. And even the CDC had to change their own language about natural immunity. And it's just basic, simple science over here, guys. I was never good in science in high school, but I can tell you this much. It's basic bottom stuff. What's going to be more effective? Natural immunity that your body creates or self induced immunity, fake immunity, when you put something into your system and you cause a reaction, your defense mechanism to unnaturally react to what you put in there. So therefore you have this induced immunity. They had to change that in their own world. Um, and also talk about, you know, as well, the global transparency. Yeah, well, the United States needs to be transparent. What we need to do right off the bat is Resign any type of treaty. The United States say, we're not going to do this thing anymore. We're going to close down our facilities. You close down yours and then get to the table again and, and speak with our even our adversaries like Russia and China and let them know we're done with this because this is something very, very scary. The reason why I supported RFK over people like Cornell West is because whether we like it or not, I know the situation in Gaza is destructive. It's terrible. And when you see that, you just your heart bleeds the Palestinians, right? You're talking about 25,000, close to 30,000 dead, mostly civilians, a lot of women and children. But they put that graphic up over there, a million, a million people plus, you know what I'm saying? In the United States, we have the worst count. So we have to get to the table. We have to, we have, to have transparency, early treatments, all that stuff. Um, and it's something that we have to keep an eye on. The first thing that should happen, though, is this guy has to go. And let's talk about the last clip over here. I believe uh, we have a couple more clips, but this one, once. All right. That's probably enough. Anthony Fauci for, for one day. <laughs> We've done half an hour. That's enough. So you get the idea anyway. You can watch, you can watch the, the show. Still about 20 minutes to go. So there's, there's still a little bit more reporting to do, but it's all fairly basic functional stuff that we've, we've, we've all heard a million times. So, not missing anything by skipping it, really. Uh, what else have we got here? So maybe we'll just listen in on the podcast for, well, 40 minutes. 40 minutes is a bit too long. Well, we can do 20 minutes or so. So this is the 207th edition with Brett Weinstein and Heather Haying. It's going on live, so live. I don't know whether I'm allowed to do live feeds of YouTube, but I'm going to do it anyway. And you need to expose your ideas scientifically to this of yourself, of your peers, of your enemies, everyone, right? But this idea of critique as the thing that is done. Like literary theory is often just critique as opposed to generating new. And the fact is that's lazy and that's easy by comparison. And and that's what we've got here. There's a whole lot of critique and, um, and you know, no ability necessarily to be like, oh, let, let, let me do it. Let me take an hour with Tucker and see how I could do it. Like, okay, that's not actually on offer. But the fact is this isn't a job that you know. And uh, and critique is 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 easy. Clean what is easy. Well, 
I'm going to separate two things, and I'm going to go back to an analogy we've used before. In ecology, ecology is a very broken field, but it's got a few uh, useful tools. One of them is the distinction between what's called exploitation competition and interference competition. Exploitation competition, if you imagine that there are, if you're a hummingbird and there are flowers that are putting out nectar, then you are in competition with everything else that wants that nectar. And by exploiting the resource, you leave less of it for others, but you're not damaging other that can't get to the resource, right? You are competing by exploiting the resource at a higher rate than they are. I think critique in this context, if somebody is angry at me because of something I've said, they want to put out stuff that shows why I've got it wrong, right? Then the point is there's a space of attention of thoughts and they may very well eclipse me and that's to the good. And then my next move is I see this thing and I think, you know, actually, yeah, they have a point there. Actually, they don't have a point here. I may respond to that thing. That makes us all stronger. And what it does that's most important is it makes us most likely to succeed in the important goal, which is defeating whatever it is that's moving through the World Health Organization, claiming that our surrender of our sovereignty is our own goddamn fault. So if you want to engage in competitive behavior and critique is part of that, by all means, do it and do it well. The better you do it, the better off we are. On the other hand, if what you're going to do is go after people who are trying to do the right thing, people who are behaving in an honorable fashion, doing the best they can, trying to make things better for us, you are part of the problem. And that's interference competition, right? That's poisoning the soil so your competitors can't grow. That is not elevating anybody. And what does it do? It absolutely makes it more likely that the tyrants are going to do exactly the stuff that you don't want them to do, that you claim is motivating your anger at me. Uh, so yep. I should say we haven't mentioned uh, lockdown specifically yet. The reason the most concentrated criticism that I am getting is on my position relative to lockdowns. And um, I feel stuck in this case because I know what my position is and I know why it is my position. My position has changed several times, lockdowns. I can articulate what it is today, but the last thing I want to do, what I, you know, if there's anybody who has had the advanced training course in facing angry, confused mobs, it's me. I know that if I do what these people want, right, if I give them what they want, they will be enraged even further, right? And make more demands, and at some point you will stop meeting the demands. And you will never apologize for right. that, which you did not do. And well, not only all didn't of these do. Things, I'm just saying in general, you will never apologize for anything that you did not do. Legitimate, honorable apologies need to remain legitimate and honorable. And therefore, you do not make false apologies. And a mob that is not apologized to when it demands one, that uh, makes demands uh, that you accede to, and then makes more demands that you stop acceding to because you realize it's an impasse and you can never win, only, as you say, becomes more enraged. I would just add one thing to that, mm -hmm. which is you don't apologize for stuff you didn't do, and you correct errors. If the errors were honestly made, you don't apologize for errors. You just right. say, I got it wrong, and now I've, this is my position. So demand for apology is out of place in the first place because right. it presumes things about motive that are just simply false. 
right? It, mm-hmm. It's the wrong paradigm. Um, so do you want to... Yeah, um, it just occurred to me when we were talking today, actually, <clears throat> excuse me, um, that, what, 11, 10 and a half months ago, excuse me, I was, I don't remember actually what prompted exactly this piece in Natural Selection. So you can show my screen here. Um, but I wrote a piece that was not exhaustive at all, but basically laying out the points um, that we have been making on COVID, on Dark Horse, uh, from from the beginning, and a few of you know errors, especially early on, and a, a bunch of not errors, in which we were right, we were early, we lost, you know, we lost a lot, uh, right? We were demonetized and and lost, um, <clears throat> lost people and such. Um, but demonetize, I would point out, has become ever clearer the more uh, time has passed. Our channel was skyrocketing in terms of uh, subscriptions. At the point we were demonetized, that stopped instantly. Yep. So not only... Not not only would we have easily had uh, financial independence very quickly uh, with that rate of growth, but the rate of growth was itself growing. Um, I mean, with with the money that was coming in and the rate of growth was, was... High. And the capping of the yep. size of the channel has effects on all kinds of things, because sure. when you publish a book, when you try to get advertisers to sign on, everything is scaled to how big is your reach. So um, so these things matter. So, yes, we paid a high price. But every so often, and this week it's uh, your interview with Tucker Carlson, um, people decide that becoming enraged is the thing to do. Um, and so I wrote this apparently with the bad guys or don't ask permission to speak. And it got a lot of, a lot of positive engagement. Uh, and I just, well, I'll read the first couple of paragraphs here. Were you silent on the question of viral origins before John Stewart and the United States Department of Energy told you that you were allowed to think certain thoughts? Those thoughts were dubbed curatorial and dangerous and careful until they weren't. Oh, maybe it did come from a lab after all. Did it take Woody Harrelson on Saturday Night Live to point out to you that pharmaceutical companies are acting as drug cartels and that the media is in their sway? Financial incentives drive drive success in business, and Pfizer is nothing if not successful these days. Maybe Pfizer wasn't the way we were told it was. These last three years, too many of us have let social coercion and fear drive what we say out loud and even what we think. We've outsourced our thinking to self-described experts, credentialed, well-dressed, well-spoken experts who have been wrong, disastrously, disastrously so over and over and over again. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me three times, four times, 50 times, 100. What the hell? Shame on all of us who continue to fall for these games. Uh... I'll read a little bit more here, actually. We need to be suspect of any conclusion that arrives fully formed, especially if no questions are allowed. In response to pronouncements from the government and health agencies, get in the habit of saying, I'm not sure about that. It can open your mind. And once your mind is open, all manner of wonderful things can happen. It may not keep you in good stead with your social group. My husband, Brett Weinstein, and I have said a lot of things these last three years that have angered people. Before John Stewart or the Department of Energy or Woody had anything publicly, we were publicly discussing, using the scientific tools at our disposal, the very real possibilities that SARS-CoV-2 was the product of -of gain-of-function research, and while its foundations were borrowed from a bat, the final product came from a lab. The vaccines that were developed at record speed and presented as the one and only solution to the problem of the pandemic, specifically the mRNA products, are neither safe nor effective. 
Many alternative treatments for COVID exist, including but not limited to repurposed drugs with extensive safety records that are long out of patent, such as ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. For this, we have been vilified. So let me just say, um, and there's more. Um, I have a long bullet list of various of our positions uh, with to where we first talked about them as far as I can find in our in our long list of um, Dark Horse episodes um, since May of 2020. Here are a few of the other things that Brett and I have given voice to these last three years, conclusions that we came to through observation of our assumptions, analysis and reanalysis. Be careful, though. Consider these ideas and who knows what could happen. And I begin with what I see as two of our big mistakes. Early in the pandemic, we thought that masks were broadly effective. We were wrong. First, we spoke about the importance of masks, and as new evidence came in, our position changed. We spoke about that too. We also thought that short, early, and strong lockdowns had a chance of stopping the spread of SARS-CoV-2. We were wrong about that. I don't think lockdowns could have worked, in part because I don't think sufficient worldwide compliance was possible to stop the spread. And as much as I am disappointed to have, handed, to have landed here, I no longer discover any of my freedoms. So it goes on and on and on. Um, so maybe this is the point to talk about uh, what my current position is on lockdowns and uh, what I regret and what I don't regret. Good. My current position, first of all, I do not believe that given what SARS-CoV-2 is, that there was any potential to control, certainly not control, spread. And my focus has been actually driving the pathogen to extinction. So the reason that I will not just simply say lockdowns could never conceivably work under any circumstances against any pathogen is that, they, remember, I'm a biologist. Here's what I'm focused on. A novel pathogen that were to jump by human meddling or some other mechanism into the human population from some animal source that therefore starts out at uh, some low level, but has significant virulence. So I'm just painting a scenario here. Were there to be a not pathogen that leapt into people, but had not yet become endemic to humanity, if one could drive it to extinction in that early phase, the value to humanity would be incalculably large. And I choose that that phrasing very carefully. The reason that it would be incalculably large is that the alternative of allowing it to run its course and become endemic is for it to continue to inflict costs on humans for as long as humans continue to exist. So there is a value to taking a pathogen that there is still the potential to drive it extinct and doing so rather than clock letting it become endemic. So you can disagree with me that that's something to be worth focusing on, but you can't disagree with me that if one had the ability to drive a new human pathogen to extinction, that the value of doing so would be very high and would be worth a significant, small, a significant but small cost. And that is why I have said short, intense lockdowns. However, so there's that. I do not believe there is a government on Earth today, at least not at any large scale, whether a city government could 
have some uh, alternative scenario, I don't know. But the idea that there's a national government or an international body on Earth today that could be trusted with this kind of power is preposterous. Nor do I expect to live to see a government worthy of trust in this regard. So going forward, I would oppose any lockdown because I regard the people who would be issuing uh, such an order to be illegitimate and very likely up to no good. But um, the point is, when I have presented this idea, I have said it as a brief, intense lockdown accompanied by high quality testing. And the idea is, in this scenario, a pathogen that spread and burned itself out in some short period of time and where in those rare cases where for some reason it was able to bounce around for long enough to escape that period of weeks, you would be able to find it with the testing that would allow in principle some uh, properly organized body to figure out how to drive a pathogen to extinction and benefit humanity tremendously. Again, I would oppose any lockdown that came uh, with from normal earth governments at the moment, but I do not rule out the possibility that in the future you could face a pathogen that it would be worth doing. What's more, I would point this out. The reason, so the folks who are attacking me have been very focused on the idea that I, in some scenario, favor something like an intense lockdown. And they've been very avoidant of why that is paired with short duration. In other words, if you're looking to paint me as a villain, you would focus on the one thing and you would, would ignore the other, which they have done. They have also ignored the fact that I've said that absolute good testing, this would be pointless. I'm not arguing that this is a useful way to control the spread of a pathogen. I'm arguing that in the brief period before something becomes endemic, that it could be used to drive a pathogen to extinction and that the disproportionate value of preventing a pathogen from becoming endemic is of a different sort. And I would argue that reasonable people all understand that although civil liberties are sacrosanct and should be, that there are circumstances in which you make a compromise. So for example, no reasonable person would argue that if you have an active shooter and they are wandering through a school that locking down the patient of that school is a violation of their civil liberties that we ought to complain about, right? Giving the police the ability to have access to the shooter and keeping people safe from the shooter is a perfectly reasonable uh, reason to have a lockdown. Is it an abridgment of people's civil liberties? You bet it is, but we all understand why. Um, likewise, if you presumably had somebody, you know, if somebody released smallpox from one of the places where it is maintained uh, under lock and key and some person had smallpox and they were wandering around a hospital, would it make sense to lock down the population of the hospital so that they didn't contact the person with smallpox? Yes, it would. So the only reason I'm pointing this out is that even though civil liberties are sacrosanct, we can all understand that there are circumstances in which it makes sense to um, prioritize something else briefly. And that's an extension of the argument that I've been making. That said, I am not favoring lockdowns. I do not believe they were ever appropriate for SARS-CoV-2, nor was the rationale that we were given for those lockdowns the one that I'm pointing to. The rationale we were given was some nonsense about flattening the curve and preventing the hospitals from being flooded, which was apparently bullshit from the get-go. 
the hospitals were largely empty. So I'm not defending anything like lockdowns that we had, and I'm not advocating that we should leave the door open to them in the future because there's no government that could be trusted with it. But is there a reason to leave the concept open for some future scenario that we cannot imagine? Yes, there is. Good. Okay. Um, oh, to your point about um, how much of this is organic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think we need to ask this question. Even the people who are actually and who are actually enraged of their own accord, they have to ask themselves how much are they being induced to to see a world that isn't in yes. order to keep us back on our heels or whatever it is. And I, w- I wanted to point to a couple things. And One, it's, and it's just it's more. It's more energizing when you feel like you've got a lot of people who are of the same mind. And oh, this is it's why mobs are what they are. Right. And I guess something I didn't say when you first introduced the idea that this um, when you were first talking about the nature of this mob is there's something mob mentality is uh, low quality. It's mm-hmm. amygdala driven. Right. Yeah. It's not your highest mental centers um, doing their best to figure out what's going on. It's you de-individuating and becoming part of something, and it's not a, a thinking, careful thing, right? So you felt small before, and now you don't feel small, and that is a source of power for people. Right. They are tapping into a feeling of a source of power where all of these aggrieved people have pointed at the same enemy, and ironically enough, that enemy is me, right? Now... Uh, a friend pointed out the relevance of the work of Rene Girard to this situation, which I'm surprised I forgot to think of myself. But Rene Girard um, was a philosophical thinker who generated a uh, a model, uh, a hypothesis about scapegoating that effectively mm. one of the galvanizing forces in any group is the identification of a scapegoat and the targeting of them. And this he uh, describes as basically the nucleating event that causes witch hunting. Right. Yeah, scapegoat um, or witch, either way. Yeah. Yep. But anyway, so it's very odd and certainly ironic that I would be the target of these people's ire. But it's not that thing that they would find some target. No. And you've been in the witch seat before. Uh, <laughs> it's it's a place I seem to find myself. And, and uh, mm-hmm. I will remind people... Um, that d- two days, I believe, before Evergreen melted down, I put on the board for my students a model of witch hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, if I remember it correctly, it was in every such scenario, there are a tiny number of people who will instigate a witch hunt. There are a fair number of people who will participate in a witch hunt. There are a large number of people who will say nothing. And there are a tiny number of people who will oppose a witch hunt. Those are the witches. Yeah. So anyway, it's, there is a reason that I end up in this situation, and um, I guess I'm kind of proud of it. But let's uh, you want to play that little video clip? So let me just say that this is some, I guess, podcaster, never heard of him, who showed up and his stuff started being circulated against between the people who were going after me. And I think it, it's just fascinating to me what it is. So, Yeah. For today, lastly, um, we're going to get into a little bit of uh, contentious territory here. Um, I have been openly 
critical of podcaster Brett Weinstein. Uh, I used to watch Brett's show. A lot of y'all might remember in the first episode of, of this podcast, um, I specifically called out Brett for his views espousing uh, a, a, Jew, a genetic genetic Jewish supremacy, let's say, uh, this idea that that the Jewish people are genetically superior to everyone else and more inherently intelligent than everyone else. Um, And I've also been super uh, vocal about my, you know, um, my issue, his coverage of the COVID response. And it seems like some people are starting to catch up with that. Um, This account on Twitter um, Jessica Hockett. Uh, I, I don't know her. Um, I don't know, you know, I don't know who she is or whatever, but, um, she recently posted this clip of Brett on, on somebody's show. Uh, I guess this is Michael Schellenberger, um, who was a reporter. So here's what's interesting. Extraordinary. Yeah. He says that he's been critical of me for, arguing that uh, Jews are genetically superior. Now, I know that I have never said this because I know that I believe it's not true, which is something I have said. And this and is not something about which you've changed your mind. No, this is something this this I've been arguing. I've always known. I have been arguing this from long before I was in the public eye, the unlikeliness of genetic superiority is, I believe, a biologically important argument. And that, anyway, so I don't know where he gets this or if it's organic at all. I know it's inflammatory. It's super inflammatory. And I mean, I, you just have to wonder, you know, do they think you're someone else? Are they just making it up out of whole cloth? Well, and, you know, there, there's going to be things, I mean, this is, that's too absurd. Right. I mean, this is actually a topic on which you have talked many, many times and have been very clear every time. And there's just no ambiguity. There are others who are ambiguous because maybe they do actually have cryptic beliefs. They don't really feel like saying yet. And uh, but that's not you. But it does reveal, though, how many such points could be made where you're like, God, I don't know. I don't think that. But I do have more nuance than you might think. And, oh, gosh, what did they what do they think I said? Like you, 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 they could cause a person to spin, not this one, because this is too obviously wrong. Right. But there are so many topics on which you can get people spun up. Yeah. But this one at this moment in history, this one is particularly useful, right? right? Yeah. You have a resurgence in anti-Semitism. You have a yep. uh, very dangerous situation in the Middle East continuing to unfold. And so just sort of introducing the idea that I harbor this belief and that he's been critical of me. So at the very best, he is incredibly sloppy and doesn't know what he's talking about and uh, has misunderstood something about my belief or who I am or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, But let's just say it doesn't really matter because nobody checked, nobody asked him for receipts on that. It was just taken to be, oh, yeah, Brett sucks. Yeah, here's another one of the things he's terrible about, right? Okay. Then he doesn't even know enough about what he's talking about to recognize that that's my podcast. 
about Schellenberger's podcast. So mm-hmm. he's completely misunderstood the context. It's as if Schellenberger is asking me about this. No, I sat down with Schellenberger and had this conversation. So anyway, it's extremely yeah. floppy. And this yeah, you're, you're in a space that's not your own, but that's just because you were traveling. But it's, yeah, Star Horse. Yeah. yeah. But the sloppiness is extreme. And, and again, a, a mob is not a careful thinking entity. It mm-hmm. is a verificationist entity. It is an right. overfitting engine, right? It is looking for confirmation of the villainy of the thing it's targeted at. It's not looking for disconfirming evidence that would cause, you know, how often in this circumstance or any of these witch hunts does somebody say oh wait a minute a piece of evidence i didn't know about maybe i shouldn't be in this mob at all i'll be over there while you guys are witch hunting because i now know something is off right that's not one of the features of these mobs but here's the thing even in an actual mob you were able to reach some people and so the asynchronous virtual nature of an online mob is even harder to is even harder to dismantle because when the actual mob came for you, you reached people and you, you, you ended up talking to people and they ended up having thoughts and questions that they never imagined that they would have. It was real time. You were face to face and they were able to see and perceive through all of the things we don't have language for that you were actually willing and interested in engaging them and that what they were bringing to you, asking to you that these were not true, right? The things that they said were true of you were not true, and you were surprised that anyone thought that, and that that actually goes away, right? There's no way to do that when there's a bunch of a bunch of people putting out content constantly that's just full of, and again, we have no idea: is it lies? Is it intentional? It's wrong. Either way, it's wrong. But it's much, much harder to actually take apart a mob when it is both asynchronous and there is no, it's not meat space, right? There's, there's, there's no actual ability to say, oh, you're a real person and I can actually distinguish things that you're saying. It's only language moving a little bit, but there's so much less. There's so much less of what the actual signal of human engagement is than when you are in person. Uh, that's absolutely correct. Um, there's also uh, one of the tough things about our All right, I'm going to break out of Dark Horse because I think we've had 20 minutes or maybe more. And as I said, the same voice can get a little bit uh, soporific. So you're listening to Free Association on Revolution Radio. My name's Dennis. The show's actually been running for nearly four years. And I'm I'm quite surprised about that because I wasn't expecting it to last four years, to be perfectly honest, when I started. I was using my... uh, Mobile phone, didn't have any ability to share video. Literally, the sound was the microphone in my mobile phone. It was a very hard beginning, but it's all I had available at the time. I didn't have a laptop. Slowly built up with a cheap laptop, started to share video. You kind of, you spot the things that are, weak spots 
as you go along when you're preparing radio, a radio show or a podcast or whatever. And the weak spot's always been the technology for me and the and the and the Wi-Fi connection. In this apartment, I'm piggybacking on on a hotspot. So I'm relying on a public Wi-Fi system, uh, using somebody else's password, trying to do everything on the cheap, basically, as as cheaply as possible, as efficiently as possible. But it means that I'm living in a a space where the technology can always be temperamental. We're doing all right tonight, but there have been there have been weeks where the, the technology just takes over completely and it becomes terrible, and you have to just give up at that point. I've tried banging my head against a wall, and it doesn't work. It doesn't change the technology. Just if you've got a weak signal, you've got a weak signal. But we're doing okay tonight. So four more years, I think, of this show is is on the cards. I'm not planning on doing it anyway. I'm not planning on it. It will evolve. The two-hour show is definitely going to evolve because it's starting from the basis of clips and conversation. I want to, I want to kind of turn it into a round table at some point. And have a bit more fun with it than than geopolitics. Be a bit sillier. I get more opportunity to be silly in two hours than I do in one. So I've now got three hours, which means I've I've got a serious opportunity for silliness. So I want to take take advantage of that in 2024. But there is there is always geopolitics to fall back on. There's always there's always that stuff and the philosophy that I can talk about maybe writing a few more scripts rather than just making it up as I go along. I don't don't really know what I'm gonna do with the show to be honest with you. I'm still figuring it out. The Saturday show's got a format and Got you your politics as the theme more or less now, so that that'll stay where it is. But this one can do almost anything, and I want to keep it that way. Right, back to Dark Horse just for the last seven minutes or so of the show. Position. This is Brett White. Is that we have spent so much time exploring our understanding of things and having that understanding evolve in real time uh, that, you know, it's impossible to know where the things we've said are, when they were said, and all this. And actually somebody, Zach, could you put up the tweet? Somebody was responding and found some timestamps in a June of 2020 uh, Rogan discussion um that i did so here um some of my defense and pointed out that in june of 2020 uh in, on the re podcast at 154.08 i said in my opinion we should have locked down severely for six weeks or something and then the quote continues and then at 20220 I said we should be outdoors we should not be locking down those environments at all 
So if you were paying this much attention, then you understood that there was a deeper model at work. And in fact, you know, you and I never get credit for this. But one of, I think, the stronger early things that you and I did was come up with a model of um, the effective volume of a space as it affected transmissibility. And the point was outdoor spaces, as much as it is surprising and conspicuous, outdoor spaces were effectively completely incapable of allowing the virus to transmit and therefore the locking of them down was an absurdity and you and i were shouting from the rooftops there's no way you should be locking down beaches and state parks you should be encouraging people to go there what's more in our, our book the uh first draft of it was finished as we emerged from the jungle having completed that draft and no but a couple months later it, as, as lockdowns were hitting, um, the first draft was being submitted in March of 2020. Okay. The um, addendum that was written after we emerged from the jungle, when we heard about COVID for the first time, so you and I uh, went to Ecuador and worked on the book. And when we emerged, we learned about what was then called novel coronavirus. So the point is the book was written without knowledge of fact that there was going to be this pseudo emergency or whatever we added something to the book and what we added was a section which we have covered here on dark horse and what it says is as a thought experiment if human beings could have agreed to stay outdoors for two weeks we could have driven SARS-CoV-2 from the face of the earth because it can apparently transmit outdoors now I worried a lot when we used to talk about Uh, the fact that it did not appear to transmit outside, that evolutionarily it would learn that trick sooner or later. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know if it has. Um, There is the weird fact of deer having shown uh, a a high degree of infection. I've never understood this piece of evidence. And it's been very hard to track to what degree they are made ill. Like, I I don't... I don't trust those data. There's something odd about it, mm-hmm. that a virus that doesn't transmit between doors should have reached uh, a high level of penetrance in a wild creature. Yeah. When did that happen? So anyway, we don't know what that means. But but the point is, if your point is, oh, uh, Brett or Brett and Heather are pro-lockdown, when you and I were shouting about the fact that we were being driven indoors, which is where the virus transmits and forbidden to go outdoors, and that that was an absurdity at every level, right? You're not seeing the full picture. The mob should be puzzling over the fact that it's got some evidence. Yes, I have said that uh, there are circumstances. All right, I think that's probably just about it for now. That's the end of of the the night show. It's been a mixture of clips, some live live uh, Dark Horse which I wasn't expecting to do but there you go sometimes it happens like that Uh, I'll be back Saturday
you interested in the paranormal? Murder mystery? Real natural law? Do you enjoy interviews with amazing guests? Then join Crypt Rick Monday night, 6 p.m. Eastern Air Time. Right here on Revolution Radio. Studio A, freedomslips.com. Crypt Rick's Ivan, thank you. Well, to the crypt. <laughs> It is no secret that the so-called mainstream media is best described as controlled propaganda. Countless news stories are either totally ignored or spun with half-truths, and because of this, essential facts and vital information are often compromised. Dr. Ott every Friday night on Studio B at 10 p.m. Eastern and learn why the story behind the story nominated for a Peabody Award in its second year of producing unparalleled broadcasting excellence in 1997. That is, if you really care about learning the truth. Interrupt your normally scheduled programming to bring you this important broadcasting announcement. Now is the time to explore your greatest potential, embracing truth, health, and wellness while discarding the system and exposing its corruption. Experience.